1: When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 4. The British Empire had been, ever since its initial phases, characterised by its great ambition and sense of destiny. We have seen it display incredible confidence and arrogance when dealing with its rivals or with the natives in the way of its white settlers. We have seen it change and adapt to the point that, by 1897, with the celebration of 60 years on the throne by the most splendid and successful queen in living memory, it has established itself as the first world power, with a chasm between it and its rivals. We are not yet ready to resume our narrative of the year 1897 or that era because it still remains to explain the background apparatus that guided this empire through its initial rocky stages and into uncertain wars, only to appear on the other side with more power, possessions and prosperity than ever before. What made Britons believe that they were so special, so distinct from their rivals and so untouchable on the world stage... In many ways, this question can be answered by posing another. How had Britain managed to transform itself from an island backwater racked with strife to a worldwide superpower without equal? Both questions can be answered by delving a little bit deeper into Britain's past. Because just as surely as the Victorian era bore witness to a period of great expansion, innovation and wealth... It was from an earlier era similar to this that the British acquired the confidence to imagine, to expand and to spend in the first place. Though its peak had since been passed, virtually every explanation for how Britain trumped its rivals and the native enemies it encountered in Africa, Asia, Australasia or America comes down to its technology, technology that was first imagined in the Enlightenment, during the time of the Industrial Revolution. I should, perhaps, issue a small disclaimer before we begin. I recognise that the Industrial Revolution may not be your thing. Rest assured, it is far from my thing. Yet I accept that I have to examine the factor of the Industrial Revolution at least a little bit if I'm going to understand the preceding era and properly communicate its varied events to you all. To avoid the topic of the Industrial Revolution when... Attempting to examine the 18th and 19th centuries will be like avoiding the topic of Victoria when examining her era, or avoiding Trafalgar when talking about Admiral Horatio Nelson. You get the idea. I promise it won't be a dry study of the period. Rather than simply a look at how Britain industrialised, I wanted to take this episode to look at why it did it, and how it impacted upon its foreign and colonial policy thereafter. It's a necessary grounding in the period, I feel, because it also helps to explain why Britain was so confident in its own abilities for 200 years before it all came crashing down. Simultaneously, it helps to paint a picture of exactly how monumental the transformation in Britain was, from rural island to world power. Finally, the legacy of the Industrial Revolution can even be felt today, so it stands to reason that it was very much relevant and part of Victorian life by 1897. Many ideas, inventions, plans, ambitions, failures and lessons were experienced in this era too, the so-called Enlightenment of roughly the 18th and early 19th centuries. If it helps, you could think of the Industrial Revolution as one of the many children of the Enlightenment. Debates could rage on about exactly how many children it had. Britain's story would have been vastly different without a key resource so incredibly abundant in so many sections of its realm. Coal. The first mineral to be properly exploited by humans, was burnt with a ferocious heat by experimental Britons in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, but it wasn't until they actually put it to productive use that waves began to be made. Replacing wood burners with coal burners enabled the creation of innovative machines that did the work of men. Objects like hand pumps to remove the water in flooded coal mines, one of the earliest uses of steam power, proved that coal could be harnessed by man. All it took were minds capable enough of imagining different ways to harness it. Newer engines replaced old ones and soon machines were being designed, manufactured by other machines and perfected by the experimentation of knowledgeable men with powerful backers, who saw potential in the ideas like mass production and steam power. Britain's scientific community was bustling with ambition and ideas, There was no stifling intellectual authority that one required the permission of in order to act, as in France for example. There was no difficulties in transporting the coal from its mine to the factory because much of the coal was found near the coast and could be transported by barge to London where it was put to good use. Textiles became the most common means of employment and here's why. Potteries churned out products that were now easily available thanks first to a greater road system petitioned for by its most important pottery owners, to be followed by an even more efficient system of transportation, the canals. Canals shaved hours or sometimes days off the time it required to make a journey, and the barges that travelled along them could carry up to 50 times more goods than the old style of travel, such as mules or carts. With the greater transportation system in place, the early 1800s experienced an explosion in growth and industry, as the reduction in breakage of products and time needed to move items meant that goods could be cheaper in price and more readily available. Britain seemed almost destined to reach the Industrial Age first. By 1870, it produced two-thirds of the world's coal and half of the world's iron production. Soon every village possessed a factory of some kind, whereas a generation before, such a building would have seemed alien. These factories produced all manner of goods, from linen to fine pottery to the newest in aristocratic finery. They employed all from the child to the woman so that whole families were sometimes dependent on their wage from them, and no longer reduced to the poverty line or workhouses as before, though undoubtedly conditions were still mercilessly tough. The wider employment gained by industry, the greater ability of man and good to get around the country and the easy application of what was first learned in Britain across to its colonies resulted in explosions of wealth and commerce. Buoyed by their free trade agreements and the superiority of their navy over the seas, the British enjoyed an unparalleled experience of prosperity and growth in the colonies and settlements. Sugar plantations, no longer permitted to use slavery after its abolishment in the British Empire from the 1830s, took to the new technologies with a necessitated urgency, while new inventors were commissioned by wealthy plantation owners to increase production in their lands by generous stipends and donations. British industries were spread to the growing Indian presence, overawing the Indian natives that for so long had regarded the British presence as nothing more than a nuisance. A rapid escalation in wealth and power began to dribble down to the lower levels too, Josiah Wedgwood, one of the wealthiest men in Britain, and better known for his hatred of slavery and association with other abolitionists, was also a pioneer in terms of marketing and advertising. It was he who began the process of marketing his products out to the growing middle class by the 1820s and 40s. It was he who the later commercialised Victorian businesses and entrepreneurs learned from when they sought to sell their wares. The Industrial Revolution established the beginnings of modern Britain because it was so transformative on society as well as the economy. As I just mentioned, with the middle class coming to possess more money to spend on items they previously wouldn't have bothered with, a growing sense of buying things, simply because they were fashionable, started to become vogue. Things became fashionable by gaining the stamp of approval of the aristocracy or super-rich of the time, or, and this made products even more sought after, if they came approved by the monarchy. Opinion is surprisingly divided over whether conditions actually improved for the lowest levels of society during this time. But as I've said before, jobs were more readily available, meaning that the poorest had more chances between simply starving or emigrating. Even the activity of emigrating was transformed, as we saw a few episodes back. Though steam travel would certainly not come into fashion and become the method of choice until the latter half of the 19th century, whiffs of it were beginning to be felt in the earlier part of the century too. As machines and engines grew in size and power, surely it was only a matter of time before they were applied to Britain's favourite institution, its navy. As a matter of fact, Britain went one better in the early 1830s. The focus would not be at sea, but instead on improving the already considerable strides made in land travel. The time had come for the railway. If better roads had sped up the process of travel and canal systems had revolutionised it thereafter, then travel by railway must have seemed like the cusp of genius to those brave enough to drive the noisy, dirty, but certainly fast machines that stretched across mysterious iron tracks. It was not until an eager Albert, alongside Queen Victoria, actually rode on a steam train in 1842 that the method of travel and transport became as appreciated and beloved as it later did. Like everything else made during the time though, rail travel was, even in its early days by its detractors, viewed as a technological progression of immense potential. Soon railway tracks snaked across the country, adding to the already abundant means of getting around. Britain was the best connected nation on earth until well into the 20th century because of what was experienced here. Canal mania gave way to railway mania, as people speculated over the value and usage of these new transport networks, and as the government, particularly with respect to canal building, practically blanketed the country with new waterways and complex systems only ending once railways properly took their place. The railway took some time to perfect, since the size and strength of the engine had to be modified until technology was modern enough to enable a steam engine of a small enough size to power a wagon across rail. The designs were only further perfected, and as the detractors became fewer and fewer, soon even average citizens were able to take trains across miles of open countryside, travelling at speeds never before thought imaginable. Some were even able to take jobs further from home than before, anticipating what was in store for the commuter belts of the future. It was thus a seriously exciting time to live in Britain or across its empire, The wealth poured in from British ships, and thanks to its navigation acts, the goods came to Britain, mostly London first, and then were transported across the world. Some of the goods were sold to British citizens in many of the burgeoning shopfronts now emerging in London and elsewhere, to the joy and relish of the more socially and economically mobile. But the majority was held in London's entrepot and then resold across the world, including to its colonies and dominions. This meant that profits in the Caribbean, for example, could now be felt across the empire, as goods were brought home to London first, then reinvested in other undeveloped places like West Africa or Asia. It helps explain how Britain managed to project its power so far across the world. We shouldn't think of Australia, for example, as a separate part of the empire to Jamaica or Bombay, but we should instead remember that the money made in Jamaica's sugar crops or Bombay's spice plantations was forcibly permeated throughout the empire. Most of the time, at least. Money was spent on imperialistic projects, and the once semi-independent commercial companies that had started the rush to India, or Canada, or New Zealand, for example, were becoming drawn closer to the centre in London, because of the abundance of wealth flowing from the capital's coffers. And the river of wealth was incredibly swollen. With increased wealth came the ability to spend and invest, which Britain eagerly did, Efforts were made to improve on already impressive technologies, to consolidate colonial administrations, to buy up land from natives, to improve naval and military arms, and to expand the rate of London in newfound regions. It was while Britain's statesmen found themselves armed with such wealth, technology and confidence that they began to apply these ingredients to their own ambitions, with monumental implications for the other nations of the world. Perhaps the greatest illustration of Britain's newfound confidence in its own superiority can be seen in the sudden turn in its relationship with China. As though struck by an epiphany, British officials suddenly demanded and received better terms on an unequal basis with China, and ensured that future economic benefits would be derived from the Sino-British relationship in the future. In 1839, the first opium war between Britain and China confirmed in London what was already suspected, that Britain's power had greatly outstripped any of its rivals across the world. In the years before, British statesmen had bemoaned the terms by which the Chinese insisted the British abide by during trade. Britons would have to prostrate themselves before the Chinese court every time they visited and wished to do business while London was required to awkwardly thank the Chinese for the Emperor's permission in granting them such generous trading rights every time they visited. It was a hard pill to swallow, and armed with their new technologies and an overblown sense of importance after having brought about a new technological order, British officials insisted they didn't have to swallow it any longer. The Canton system had been established by the Chinese in the latter half of the 1700s, to control and monitor trade with the West on their terms. Although it had been many years since the British or any other power had been forced to kowtow to a Chinese bureaucrat, the much-romanticised memory of such an event for the proud British establishment was kept fresh in the minds of those that dealt with the country, since some residual aspects of it still remained. The Canton system, named after the port city through which all trade passed, posed a number of problems for the British. First, because they could only trade through this wooden port, corruption and opportunism amongst the Chinese was said to be rife. Because the British had no choice but to trade at Canton, they frequently brought back stories of Chinese bullying and outrage. Some of these tales may well have been exaggerated, but the Chinese had implanted the Canton system as a direct response to the influx of foreigners and the fear that such an influx would affect Chinese society. The methods for controlling the western influence was established in 1762 and was literally termed Vigilance towards Foreign Barbarian Regulations. And contained important rulings including number 1, trade by foreign barbarians in Canton was prohibited during the winter, number 2, foreign barbarians coming to the city must reside in the foreign factories under the supervision and control of the Chinese, number 3, Chinese citizens are barred from borrowing capital from foreign barbarians and from employment by them. Number four, Chinese citizens must not attempt to gain information on the current market situation from foreign barbarians. Having accomplished so much at home in the Industrial Revolution and having enjoyed such a resulting surge in prosperity and power, British agents were no longer content to abide by these rules once they felt they had the power to disobey them. The second important problem that the British had with the Canton system was that it required the payment for all Chinese goods, mainly tea since the British public couldn't get enough of it, with silver. The Chinese wouldn't accept anything less than silver, and if the British couldn't pay for it, then there existed plenty of other European powers that could. Britain had to pay 28 million kilos of silver to the Chinese every year from the late 1700s in order to acquire the tea that it so badly needed. To get this silver, it had to buy it from its competition in South America, driving down its balance of trade surplus and really hurting it financially. To counterbalance this unsustainable trade-off and to get around and turn the tables on the Chinese, the British ensured that the sale of opium in China rose. Opium came from areas outside of the East India Company's direct control, but the EIC allowed the sale of it on the condition that the product always went to British merchants in China. From 1781, the sale of opium had begun, but it took some time for the drug to take off in China. Once it became clear that the Chinese were willing to pay for the drug with silver, a light bulb went on in London. British merchants could use the silver to pay for the tea, creating a system which would eventually pay for itself. Soon the Chinese market was saturated with the drug to the point that demand for opium far outstripped the British ability to supply, and that whenever a new shipment arrived, it was immediately set upon by Chinese merchants eager to pay for it. By taking back the silver, the British began to see better surpluses in their Chinese dealing by the turn of the 19th century. But the Chinese court had begun to get wise to the drug and banned its use. Banning the drug wasn't an easy policy to police, though. The Chinese governor of Canton had become wealthy off the proceeds of the drug, and he remained intransigent to the calls to halt its importation. In the meantime, by 1820, the Chinese court faced a series of rebellions across their dominions that demanded payment to suppress. Now short on silver, enforcing the government's authority seemed particularly difficult. Then the problem got worse. The massively significant Charter Act of 1833 transformed the East India Company from a commercial to an administrative entity, and created a Governor General of India in the process. On this clumsy road to Indian ownership, London also ruled that the EIC no longer possessed the sole monopoly for trade with China. In other words, anyone with the resources could trade with the Chinese, and this meant that anyone with the resources could trade opium with the Chinese. Suddenly, the market became yet more saturated with cheaper opium from Turkey as American merchants got on the boat, while the British methods became more cutthroat as Indian growers expanded greatly in number. All this resulted, by 1834, in a huge problem for the Chinese, who now suffered from silver shortages and a population afflicted with the effects of this awful drug. Further royal proclamations in China were made demanding the secession of smoking opium or of taking it into the country, but it was all in vain. The opium monster that Britain had created was far too beneficial for them to kill. They were selling 1,400 tons of opium a year by 1838, but the Chinese began to fight back and sentence Chinese dealers of the drug to death. More was to come. The responsibility for dealing with the opium threat fell to the Chinese bureaucrat Lin Zexu who was appointed Special Imperial Commissioner by the Chinese Emperor. Lin set to work banning the drug outright, sealing the port of Canton to all foreign traffic and actually ordering that all opium found be destroyed. This was provocative and shocking enough to the British, who had thus far evidently taken none of the Chinese threats seriously, but the Chinese were also ordered to board British and American vessels outside of the port of Canton and destroy any opium chests on board that they found there too. This was seen as a breach of the Chinese rights, since the vessels were outside of Lin Zexu's jurisdiction, but he wouldn't hear any protests or offer any apologies. What was more, with the port of Canton sealed and nobody allowed in or out until the opium was destroyed, many British officials within that city were essentially held hostage until the deed was done. The British Superintendent for Trade in China ordered that the best way for the deadlock to end was to hand the chests over. This man... Charles Eliot insisted that the British government would compensate these traders for their losses, placing quite the responsibility on London. Over 20,000 chests of opium were destroyed, and for a time it looked as though Lin's laws were working out. Opium and its effects were not felt in China for the months that he worked. A document was drafted which insisted that any merchant caught with opium would have his cargo seized, and he would be executed. Charles Eliot refused to sign such a decree and waited instructions from London over what to do next. An undercurrent of dissatisfaction was building, even as Lin seemed to be on the verge of victory. Enraged by the fact that they had been cut off from China by the actions of Lin Zexu, a considerable China trade lobby petitioned the Prime Minister and numerous MPs for London to take serious action once and for all. Those foreign traders, British and American and European alike, cursed the actions of Commissioner Lin, who had held them hostage for nearly two months in spring 1839 as he destroyed all of their opium. Lin crossed the line with his recent decree, which enabled the Chinese to put any opium traders to death if they were found. Many were unsure exactly how strict the terms of this document were. Could one be killed if he traded with opium, or if he merely travelled on a boat that had opium? Unwilling to take any chances, and with the support of Charles Eliot behind them, a level of foreign intransigence set in. This intransigence was reinforced by the idea that Britain's national honour had been slighted. Its vessels had been boarded and goods destroyed, where the Chinese had possessed no rights to do so. While their merchants had been severely inconvenienced, and made to agree to numerous conditions upon pain of death. It wasn't right, the China lobby insisted. Then, the Times published a letter sent by Lin Zexu. It had been meant for the eyes of Queen Victoria, and Lin had naively supposed that by appealing to the Queen directly, he could sway her entire country. Lin did not count for the fact that many hundreds of merchants operated in the name of money, not the Queen, and that they would have been happy to defy her orders just as they had been happy to defy the orders of the Chinese Emperor for many years beforehand. After debates between the beleaguered British merchants, it was decided that moving away from the port of Canton would be the best course for the moment. It was hoped that at least something could be gleaned from stationing themselves away from that city and moving instead to Hong Kong. Yet Commissioner Lin further exploited the weaknesses of the British by demanding the handing over of a British seaman suspected of killing a Hong Kong native. Charles Elliot refused to hand over the culprit and the standoff continued. The British offloaded their cargo and sailors on Hong Kong Island as they awaited instructions from home. Would London aid the plight of its subjects, now reduced to refugees? Would it answer the challenge to defend its honour? British Prime Minister Lord Palmerston granted the declaration of war on the 1st of October 1839. While it was also decided that the Chinese, not the British, would foot the bill for those 20,000 chests of opium that they had destroyed in the spring that year. Historians have since supposed that it was not the economic factors that necessarily influenced a declaration of war, or the China trade lobby, that had grown increasingly vocal over the previous months. Instead, as Robert Bickers explains in his book, The Scramble for China, the issue was one of national importance. Quote, "...the war decision was taken not to enforce an illegal trade, but to secure redress for insult." the holding of the Canton Bridge hostages for their opium stocks, and the holding of the Crown's representatives. Lord Palmerston's ministry needed to act. Any ministry would have needed to act. The immorality of the contraband trade, the economic consequences of a restricted China trade, and the potential of the commerce that could be grown with the end of the Canton restrictions were all debated and discussed. But for the cabinet, China was the one issue among many, and the issue that stood out so clearly was honour and the consequences of failing to maintain it, insult, and the consequences of failing to redress it. End quote. History professor Glenn Melcannon even wrote an article about the subject, which I referred to in my dissertation as one of the clearest examples of national honour being used in an international dispute. The series of insults had to be answered. They had to be checked before any other could be added to the pile. Britain was facing down threats to its prestige across the world in 1839, Should it blink in China then, it was theorised, a cacophony of challenges to its power would result. London had to prove that it was not a paper tiger, and that it would enforce its rights to the region no matter what the consequences were. It was no coincidence that Britain at this stage was armed to the teeth when it arrived at this decision. Following a century of modernization and industrialism, it was about to put into military practice all that it had gained. Former United States President John Quincy Adams remarked that the selling of opium was "...a mere incident to the dispute, the cause of the war is the Koto, the arrogant and insupportable pretensions of China that she will hold commercial intercourse with the rest of mankind, not upon terms of equality, but upon the insulting and degrading forms of relations between lord and vassal." In the past, before her might had ballooned and her wealth swollen during the Industrial Revolution, Britain might have quietly accepted the Chinese demands. Now there was too much at stake. Britain was more than willing to put its recent gains to the test in China, and she did not seek to avoid war because her statesmen sensed that they were more powerful than the resident Chinese court. They were more correct in this belief than they could have imagined. Fast forward to three years later when the peace was made and after three years of devastating defeats, the Chinese signed the first of what were deemed the Unequal Treaties with Britain. Britain was granted control over the then undeveloped island of Hong Kong, an obviously significant development for the British penetration in Asia, and with the British steamships pointing their guns eagerly at the Chinese, further concessions were also made. The British gave nothing in return, though the Chinese paid 21 million dollars, a combination of debts owed by the Chinese merchants, money lost by Lin Zexu's dumping of opium, and the designated cost of war reparations, and any Chinese that traded with the British were also pardoned. The issue of opium was left deliberately vague and would only be settled upon the conclusion of another war in the late 1850s. With such glittering results, the British had successfully penetrated China's markets, It represented a downward spiral of Chinese power and the beginning of the so-called century of humiliation that would culminate in the Boxer Rebellion of 1900. With the victory in China now and the results undeniable, British statesmen began to apply the lessons learned across the globe. In particular, there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcarecom weight loss. That's plushcarecom weight loss. Plushcare.comslash weight loss.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
1: To the fringes of their empire, it had imbued the British with an imperialistic sense of confidence, a flame first lit in the fires of the factories that had characterised the Industrial Revolution, which had now grown to an inferno. This inferno would soon spread to further continents, as Britain consolidated and projected its power utilising lessons learned in the war. In the first half of this Britain's century. However, while revolutions in British power were happening abroad, revolutions of a different kind were happening at home, with political consequences for the Empire and home islands that were close to immeasurable.